SheQuest Podcast is the home of heart-opening dialogues, stories, and experiences for self-identified women on SheQuest. Season 5 is now bilingual as I welcome co-host Nadia Bonafa. Hey, Nadia! <laughs> hey, Estelle! Delighted to be part of SheQuest Podcast Forward Movement to Live Aware, Bold, and Whole. Let's do this! Woohoo! Hi, SheQuest, and welcome back to part two with Kate Inglis. And if you haven't had the chance, do please listen to our first conversation, part one. The subject of conversation have been, for me, really about widening our lens on grief and, and its nuance. We were talking about that word, the word nuance. I must say, I really love, Kate, that we're, you know, we're spending this much time. Ah, we just don't have patience anymore to, like, really look at something and really look at parts of stories and, like, really look at it in in all its corners and all its facets and, you know, really put a lens on it. And I feel that's what we're doing. And I, I just want to thank you so much for, for your time. Kate is recording this from her closet. And I, I just love this idea of, and she was, just say what you just said off the mic, how like you're in this little bubble almost. Yeah. It's, it's just obviously tiny and I have a cushion on the floor and I'm surrounded just on all sides by all the clothes that I probably shouldn't have bought. <laughs> my excess in my, the, because of my, my delight in, in shopping at vintage stores and, and uh, Frenchies. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Another reason why we would get along, I believe. Of course, of course. So our last conversation, we kind of delve in the experience of the birth, you know, of of Liam and Ben and kind of your experience of NICU. Um, and I, I kind of chimed in a little just because I, I, you know, I have my own as well. Um, I will still ask you, hopefully you're not annoyed by this, but I I always love to ask a question like today, before we start delving into today's subject, which is I wanted to talk about triggers and about honesty too. I think that came up for me. I was, I was kind of thinking about our conversation, but um, Kate, what makes you feel alive today? Oh gosh. I know last week I said struggle. (laughs) What would I say? What makes me feel alive today? I think maybe it's connected to the way that I felt last week, but this week I'm feeling like I'm just searching. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking for some kind of voice that I can trust within myself because lately I feel really lost. You know, I have two teenagers now, almost 14 and 16 year old boys. And I feel like I don't know how to be a parent anymore. So I'm afraid it's another angle on struggle for me this week. But I mean, you know, they're wonderful. They're lovely. They're well-adjusted. They're doing great. But I feel like I've lost a lot of my instinct. And so I feel like I've just spent the last week searching and trying to figure out how to better search um, in terms of, you know, I think we hit we hit these sort of milestones in our lives maybe where where we get the feeling that a chapter has turned and everything's different and i don't know how to be me in this chapter i don't know how to how to guide teenagers i don't know how to deal with my career at the age of 48 and what i'm going to do next and yeah so i just feel like i've been searching a lot but really when you think of it being active in how you process your life and being a searcher and being sort of constantly alert and questioning to, oh, maybe it's overly neurotic. I don't know. But, but that's certainly, <laughs> that certainly is something that makes me feel alive because it connects me to all of you and to everyone else. Because I think if we're not in a state of seeking and trying to find 
more layers to our all of our myriad inner voices, trying to get them to know them better, uh, trying to know when to listen to them and when to tell them to pipe down. Um, these are all really universal sort of moments, I think. And so, so that's, I wish I could say something like, you know, dancing on the beach or, <laughs> you know, prancing through a meadow or beautiful food, all these things that are true for me too. But both times you've asked me that question, I've just been like, ah. And you know, that's why I have you on the show. That's why I have you on the show. I really admire oh. that. I'm, I really, really admire that. And you said little golden nuggets there, but I, I think which kind of ties with our conversation last last week, because that's when we talked in real time about this loss of instinct as mom, you mentioned that, like, I, I feel I've lost my instinct. Um, and I feel that was yeah. kind of part of our conversation last week. And Kate, mm-hmm. you wouldn't believe, so right before talking with you, I, I took your book, of course, my book, uh. <laughs> I Feel a Guide to Grief, and guess where I landed? You're going to flip out because I was like, I couldn't wait to know what you were going to answer uh, because I mm. feel so fresh, what you say, so fresh, yeah. and uh, check it, check this out. Uh, oh, I'm scared. This, no, this is from Kate's book, <laughs> A Field Guide to Grief, that you must, must get. And it says, it's radical to say anything other than fine when someone someone asks you how you're doing. So be radical. And when you feel like it, seek out cheer and try on presentability. Buy books with daisies on the cover. It's good practice. But make space to, if you feel like it, for profane rage, that kind of overwhelming bitterness that's sacrilegious to anyone who passive aggressively gives you a book about the power of positivity. (laughs) Profane rage is irreverent too. Don't resist or fear it. It won't stick to you like ticks or lice or bad stink. Its origin are worth talking about. Oh, I need to take some of my own advice. <laughs> oh God. And not, you know, and not feel bad for struggling. Not feel bad for for sort of still seeking after all this damn time. And in my increasingly uh supposedly distinguished age, the fact that I'm still seeking that I feel like I don't know who I am anymore mm-hmm. is just doesn't it just feel a little bit ridiculous and pathetic <laughs> and neurotic? But but then that's a big part of that piece that you just read back to me is, so what? You know, I mean, that's that's what it is. And that's a big part of the fire that is a very generative fire that burns inside of us, is that seeking and that discontent and that grappling that we're always doing. That is comes from the same source as all of our creative energy and our curiosity and our insatiability. And those are all really positive things. So, and you know what, Kate, that's why the podcast is called She Quest. <laughs> What's in the word quest? It's the word question. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I go back to that all the time. Like, I love that you said, so what? So what? I'm lost at 48. So what? I'm lost at. 75, you know, like <laughs> this yeah. idea, like I made it, you know, like I would, it's like, that's all such BS, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> BS. There's a beautiful book. I'm going to butcher the title, but um, it's about an artist who the title is so beautiful. It's like started her life's work at 78. And like, <laughs> oh my like, God, you know, I was yeah, like, that's wonderful. Yeah. And I, I love, like, I just love your honesty and it ties so well with what I want to talk about today. So I'm going to tell you a story and I just, I want to know if you can relate and I'd love if you could tell, tell me your story. And also for anyone listening, um, Kate's book, like it's, I love that you went by years of grieving. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know if you did that to just like for it to just make sense in the writing or something, but like for me, all my years are so distinct almost but I'm going to tell you a quick story because this is why I'm doing a conversation on this. I, uh, my dog got poisoned on our walk. We were out walking oh, no. and it's a long story, but bottom line, he got poisoned. 
we didn't know he got poison until at night when basically he was like non-responsive and like throwing up everywhere. So I was like, okay, this is something's wrong. So at 10 p.m., I had to drive my dog at the mert, the you know, the vet, the mert the vet. vet. Mm-hmm. And I was driving there and it triggered. I was so triggered, Kate, because it I was back when the dozens of time I had to do that with my son, like middle of the night, don't know what to do. And I was, I was driving and I was like, I thought like it opened and I've been feeling so tender, like since then it's like a mix of like frustration. And also it's me like knowing better now, like being almost compassionate, like being able to pull myself out of myself and being like, oh, like, it's okay. Like you're still healing. And then another part of me, it's like, it's like, oh my fuck. Like, can't you be over this? Like, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I want to talk about triggers in like obvious and PTSD too. And then I remember last conversation too, you talked about going back to NICU every year with your mom. Mm. And I remember going back to NICU and I wasn't triggered at all. Like it was so funny. I I thought I was like waiting for it. And I was like, no, I actually feel really great here. I Mm. (laughs) It's so weird. Like things you think nothing about. And then other things you're like, for sure, I'm going to be triggered by this. Like you're not. Um, Can you speak to your experience on this? And like, this is really why. And like for me, like the way, like I feel triggers their treasure chests <laughs> to not just mm-hmm. like, let's say the grief over my son, but like to my, almost my identity as like all the hats I wear. Uh, but anyway, yeah. I want to, I want, I want you to talk to this specifically in your experience. Well, I think I have kind of two, I'm of two minds about, about, <laughs> about triggers and, and the word triggers to me is very triggering. I'll just like to say that. <laughs> Only just because it's like many words nowadays in our in our crazy world, it, it has been overused and it has come to mean different things that don't mean what we mean when we talk about P- PTSD. So it's it's a bit of an odd word for me, but um, I think the most you know most directly in terms of my experience, I've absolutely had moments that were very direct triggers. So mostly when I've gone into the hospital to uh, bring the, qu- the little quilts into the NICU and give them over from my mom's sort of effort, it's been with Ben. He comes in and helps me lift, you know, five garbage bags full of beautiful incubator quilts. And so we go in and, and there's kind of this moment where you know, the nurses look at him and, and of course the turnover is high in the NICU. So it's not like we're going back to see the nurses we knew for the most part, but they see him and, and they sort of, they know about the quilts and they love getting them and they look at Ben and they kind of put two and two together and they say, Oh, and Ben was in the NICU and yes, he was. And he was two pounds and then, oh, wow, look how strong he is now. And, and then we, we leave and, you know, it just, makes me feel very, you know, at this point, this many years later, it puts me off for a couple of days, only in the sense that I feel bad for the parents who can't just walk out of there with a healthy child, or who may not, or who don't know if they will. I just feel like I've committed a prison break without letting anyone else out with us, you know, because you can't, because everyone's journey is their own. And so it's just a really weird sort of mix of emotions at this point that, that really just kind of amounts to love and appreciation. And, and, you know, at this point, 14 years later, I'm able to just kind of let it wash over me and think, there it is. And that, that, that chapter I can sort of look back on now as a distinct time in my life that was very raw and I feel sad about it. I feel grateful for it. I feel not so much at this point. That's not my avenue for feeling a connection with Liam. That is more my avenue for seeing ghosts of myself Mm -hmm. and as a, as a mother in shock, as a mother with a very fresh scar 
and and sort of the ghosts of all of us um, I see in there. And that's almost more eerie than my ongoing sort of relationship, for lack of a better word, with Liam, which is sort of a different thing that that just lives all the time in me. Um, but earlier on, the triggers were obviously a lot more raw, um, but they also weren't really triggered by external factors most of the time. Sometimes I would just find myself alone in my car and driving, and then I would, I would start smelling morphine out of nowhere, and I would start breathing tightly, and I had to pull over because I felt like I was going to throw up, just for no reason at all, with no triggers. And so when I think about all those moments when PTSD has kind of bubbled up for me, it's been entirely random and is really just a function of the body still having some stuff to to vent and to off gas. And the body is and the heart are just as confused as I am. And they just need to let some of it go. And it's all a part of the process of letting the pain go a little bit. Because as much as it feels like a great burst of explosion in the beginning of pain, it's probably going to be a good 10 years of just sort of those last few kind of drips and remnants and fragments of pain that are that you still didn't know were in there because there's you know it doesn't live in you as presently as it used to and so it kind of seeps for a while and yeah sure there were a few direct explicit triggers we'll put it that way like people who I would you know see in the grocery store that would look at Ben and say wow he's small like that must have been easy uh or just all the insensitive things people say, often without even meaning to. Um, certainly one thing that I always found most difficult was being, you know, in your first five years of being a mother, no matter what your situation was, no matter what you faced, being in the company of other women who, you know, play dates, baby showers, there's sort of this almost ritual of everyone kind of sharing their gore of birth and sort of comparing stories and talking about their episiotomies. And I, I did find that really, really, really difficult. I would just completely clam up and go silent. Sometimes I would leave the room because I just thought, you guys don't want me to open my mouth right now. You really don't. <laughs> because I just felt this really ugly pull to really use what happened to me as a how dare you you guys need to get a grip because do you do you know who I am <laughs> like not in that way but like there's this part of me that's like how can you be talking about pissing a little when you sneeze and that being a great uncomfort for you when I'm in the room like there's a very sort of a narcissistic nature to this kind of a sadness because you feel you are extraordinary in this particular pain. And so when ordinary people try to express their pain, everything's relative. They're allowed to. There, there are a few years there where you just don't have the patience for it, where you get very snippy, whether you voice it or not, you're, you're grappling in your head with all these ugly thoughts. And, and that's just, you know, and then I would feel, I wouldn't say anything, but then I would feel terrible for being, if I can, you know, use the, the direct word for feeling like such a bitch all the time, for being so uh, righteous about pain as if it, it was mine to own and license <laughs> because I knew it so well and mine was so intense. Pain is everyone's to own and they carry it in different ways and for different reasons. And, and I knew that. But there's just this kind of a reflex that I had no control over, that I felt really bad that I had. And I, I didn't act on it. I just held it inside and it really flustered me, but probably not in a way that anyone else would have noticed. And so the real action, I think, for any of us feeling that way, whether we're feeling that way about a loss or 
our own chronic illness or our own difficulties in our relationships or marriages or whatever, when you feel kind of righteous or self-absorbed about your story, about your narrative, I think what you need to do in that moment is just forgive yourself for having those ugly feelings. And just, you have to be your own mother in that moment. Because what do you do with a child who's having a tantrum, who's behaving inappropriately, who's acting like a bit of a bully, quite frankly, who's, who's maybe saying mean things that you know they don't really mean? You take that child and you don't say, you're a bad person for having these thoughts. How dare you? You're, you're a horrible person. You should be ashamed of yourself. We don't say that to our kids. We say, okay, honey, you need to get a better sleep tonight. Let's go and have some quiet time. Let's, let's leave the situation and have a little walk. And then when you've calmed down, let's talk this through. Because I love you no matter what. And now I'm making myself all weepy. Uh, and, you know, I love you no matter what. And it's okay for you to have these feelings. It's okay for you to be mad. We say this to our kids without a thought. Of course we do. It's, it's everything that motherhood is. But we don't say it to ourselves. <laughs> and we really need to say this to ourselves. And that's, that's the thing to remember. This is the practice, is of allowing yourself, no matter what the pain is, to let it bubble up and just let it exist and say, it's okay. And, and to treat yourself, you know, if you can kind of do that magic and split yourself into two inner beings. And one of those inner beings is the mother, the archetypal mother. And the other is the upset child. And you can do that for yourself. It's interesting when sometimes you're thinking these things through and you voice it, you think, you know that when it dredges up kind of a tight throat for you and you have those emotions, it's like struggling with a stretch in yoga. That's the stretch you need to be doing. <laughs> like the reason why you find, you know, shoulder stuff so constricting is because you're really tense there and you need to that's where you need to put your attention. And I think when we're sort of talking through and rationalizing and we strike on something that really needs to be stretched, mm. that's when the throat gets tight and you kind of start bubbling up. And, and so I'm, I'm grateful to this conversation for helping me find one of those, one of those spots that obviously is something that I need to be doing. It's important to have those discoveries. You put the words to exactly, and like, I feel you're weeping for all of us, Kate. <laughs> I, I, I really do. Um, I live to serve. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I feel that's so much. And I felt that, like, see, you could put the words to what I, like at that moment for me in the car, like I... I, I couldn't have done that in the first years of, you know, losing my son. But yeah. like now, like I can be like, okay, I'm in a trigger and almost like pulling myself out and like it's so beautiful. I forgive myself like this forgiveness. Like now I'm getting edgy. Like it's really about forgiving ourselves, isn't it? Like it's, yeah. it's like deep, like rooted in like, deep, 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 like compassion. Mm. Yeah. There's like that mother, that mother quality to it. Yesterday, um, like, you, you know, I'm a yoga teacher too. I love you took this mm. metaphor because yeah. I, I do a lot of little exercise like before our yoga classes. And um, one I do often is I, and I, I, I teach mostly women, but um, I ask students to like, one word that describes their day and we've been I've been with the same group for many years so like the women sometimes will say rage <laughs> you know they'll say I'm mm. I'm exhausted I'm I'm at the end of my rope I'm this and that and it was so fascinating yesterday one of the one of the women said you told us to keep that word 
but I don't want, I didn't want to feel that word. <laughs> oh yeah. And, you no, know, like I didn't, and it was so, it was so simple, but it was like so beautiful. Like, it's like, you don't want to feel these things. And so I love that you brought the child in and the toddler having a tantrum because that's really yeah. how it feels. Like, like, yeah. I don't want to feel this. Like, I don't want to be this. Like my, my life should have been that way. And like, feel it and like to like being allowed to like when at the beginning I remember like doing my yoga practice and like my stretches weren't enough like I needed to shake <laughs> like yeah. I needed to literally like roll on the ground and like <laughs> it was just like mm. you no know, it wasn't pretty yeah. I'm glad like I I and I I teach that now like shaking and dancing like I mean animals you know, do it. When it's an emotion like rage, maybe it becomes what, maybe what you bring onto the mat is your mother archetype. Yeah. So you're not, you're not stretching the child. You are stretching into your being as the mother of that child. You, you are saying, well, of course you're mad. Of course you are. And that's okay. You know, you're giving yourself that permission I think that's what patience is, is when you can sort of split yourself into those two voices to understand that when you, you know, because when kids have tantrums, it's because they don't have any control. And that is really enraging. They can't get what they want or something is taken from them or they're tired and because they're not old enough to be able to control their world to, for example, uh, feed themselves when they're hungry or understand when they're overtired and they need to go to bed because they don't have those sort of self-regulating systems built into their own routine. They, they depend on us for that. And so when things get out of balance and then they are triggered by a train being taken away from them or a place they want to go or don't want to go, and the tantrum ensues, it's because of that, that they don't have the control. And they also, of course, they don't have the impulse control either. And I think so many of our own breakdowns and our own triggered moments and our own tantrums as our inner child are for the exact same reason. Because you can't control grief. You can't control the fact that your son was sick. Neither can I. I can't control the fact that he's gone. And so, so much of it is just all around feeling out of control. And so many of our complex and difficult emotions, I think, that's, that's where they sit in that space of what it all comes down to is that you don't get that control. So deal with it. You need to figure out how to be okay with not having control of all of the lives and choices of your teenagers, of your marriage necessarily, or how someone else feels about you as a friend. You know, that that is growing up, is, is coming to terms with not being able to order the world um, exactly the way we want it. You can't do that. I used to run um, a community, well, a community that I founded, Glow in the Woods, which is for parents that have experienced infant loss. I did it for many, many years and only until just recently. But there was a spell there for a while that I took a break from running it um, because it's what happens with Glow. There's a series, there's always sort of a cohort of writers and editors that sort of comes and goes because people are at different stages of grief. And eventually we always used to call it that we were like, oh, this is such an old reference, but we used to say that we were grief menudo. If you <laughs> Menudo was a boy band, like a uh, Hispanic boy band in the States that you had to be between 15 and 17 year old boy. Mm. And as soon as a kid hit 17, they kind of graduated out and they were replaced by another adorable 15 year old. And, and they were kind of this teeny bop band. So that was kind of our joke at Glow is that it was whenever someone kind of graduated from sort of not needing or wanting to write on a regular basis about grief, we always kind of cheered them on and said, excellent. Okay, good. So you're, you're kind of, you're feeling it more deeply embedded now and, and that's good. But when another editor took over, she got to a point where it had become very fashionable on the internet to put trigger warnings on everything. 
And that's kind of the direction that Glow went in for a little while is every single post, as it eventually became, needed a trigger warning because it was like, trigger warning, this following post mentions living children. Trigger warning, this post mentions subsequent pregnancy. Trigger warning, this post uh, mentions trying to get pregnant. So that, you know, and, and I... I had to, I took over the site again later because she had kind of reached her moment and she was done and she had done a great job of managing the site. But I got back on there and I sort of thought, what have we become? Because it started out as a, oh, we'll just do it every once in a while. But then it became pretty much every post had a trigger warning on it. And I sort of thought from the perspective of grief, the whole world is a trigger. You know, if, if you're going to stay inside your closet for the rest of your life, then, okay, you will be safe from triggers. You won't see other healthy babies. You won't see people that have five children with no issues. And, and, and you won't see that unfairness. You won't be presented by women walking around with big pregnant bellies. Um, that's one way of living. I don't call that living. And we, at some point, we really do have to say, you know what? Everything is a trigger, so we don't need warnings. What we need to do is how to hold our grief and our disappointments and our struggles with not having any control as these very fragile, precious things that they are for us. These are very deep and important emotions, that these journeys that we go through. But at the same time, we do ourselves such a favor to learn how to move through an uncontrollable world with the practice of cultivating more anti-fragility, with being less breakable in the sense that, well, of course people are going, I'm going to run into a stroller at some point that has a newborn in it. So (laughs) that's what I need to adapt to, that if I resent every new baby That's not a practical way of living a well-adjusted, happy life. At some point, I need to graduate beyond that. I need to reconcile that not everyone is going to be as extraordinary as I am in terms of the short straw they've drawn. And I can't hold that against the world. I can't see myself as sort of weirdly superior because someone else hasn't hasn't suffered as much as I've suffered. Because maybe they have, but in some other way that I don't know, that I haven't suffered. So, so there is sort of, I think, a point in our grief when we mature to kind of, you know, I, I'm not quite so fragile anymore. I'm okay. I'm okay with not being okay. I'm, I'm able to sort of hold on to all these contradictions, all these good fortunes and bad fortunes in my life without falling apart completely. And, and I think time helps. And, and I really do think that is maybe a good way of thinking about it is that, that if we want sort of a mechanism to help us to get to a, a, a more broadly operable state that I can trust myself out in the world to be okay and to not be always raging is to develop that dialogue between the archetypal mother and the archetypal angry child. And that both of those beings exist within each one of us, and we need to help them talk to each other and and allow them both to exist inside of us. And I think once we do, if we're able to do that, then we're able to sort of achieve those fuzzy notions of things called forgiveness, which is such an elusive giant word. What does that even mean? How do I get there? That's how you get there. By being able to see your behavior, your reactions, your perspectives as manifestations of a mother or of a tantrum. I'm so excited to introduce Estelle Thompson. Yes, that's me online art and yoga studio, a place to engage, explore, transform, and most importantly, play to free your unique expression of soul. With the coupon Studio 20, try one month of studio features with 20% off. Again, that's Studio 20, S 
T U D I O two zero. You're welcome. Now back to our electrifying guests and conversation. The whole world is a trigger. Yeah. There's a, I just love that so much. Like I, like I, one of of my first triggers was like going to superstore because like Mm. that was one of the outings like that I would do with Tommy like all the time. And it occurred to me like the first time I was, I wasn't sure I was able to like go in the superstore. And then part of me, I was like, what? I'm never going to go grocery shopping again. Right. I know. <laughs> I yeah. was like, okay, like put your big girl's pants on and like go in. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, that's just a little example and it's oversimplified. Mm-hmm. Of course, it made me think of when you were speaking of this concept of self-responsibility, you know, mm-hmm. and like really being able to own our shit (laughs) and like what I'm going to blame Superstore now because of the death of my child. Like, sorry, Mm -hmm. like you to change your entire brand because like I'm suffering so much right now that I can't go shopping. Like, of course it's more complex than that, but like people laugh because like I'm, I love the show. Do you watch Outlander? The show Outlander? Oh, sure. Yeah. But like, (sighs) Yeah, the and I refer to it sometimes because, like, I think I love it so much because it makes you remember, like, you know, back two hundred years ago. Let's say they were so close to death. Like they, I love mm. that they were like the first. You know, they're dirty and it's gross, and they see mm-hmm. people dead and the blood and gory and like it's part of everyday life you know somebody gets a flu and they could die like mm-hmm. in a moment like the urgency of life you know it's like i like i love that <laughs> like we're so are you moved. sure are you <laughs> sure the reason you love that show isn't those few shots that you can watch in slow mo when Jamie swings his leg up over oh, his horse well, come on now come on that- <laughs> fine i watched <laughs> the sex <laughs> yeah face it um but i hairy I, legs I, and kilts yeah <laughs> exactly no there's that too obviously but yeah. i just love yeah. do you know what i'm saying though like i mm. like part of me you know and i you speak of that yeah. in your book too like and i speak of it in my documentary where like i had never seen a dead baby like ever you know I had never yeah. I didn't of course yeah you know and that part just that like like let's say if I had been more exposed to it which you know you can go you can get numb by it as well if you see too much like I'm thinking of paramedics or this and that but like hmm. like the, the fact that we're so removed by it you know we want like I love that you talked about all the warnings like on your on your website like it's like is there it just got to be a bit silly, you know? Yeah. And like, <laughs> like you go out of your door. I feel like you go out of your house. Like, is there a warning? Like, <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just... and, and it just felt like we were, we were cultivating fragility. We, we were setting a precedent that you, you and your grief is so special and, and overwhelming and always will be that that it's okay if you can't cope with other people existing in the world with different experiences than yours. And to me, that's not a healthy message that at all. Healthy at all. Yeah. It's just, it's just a different perspective. I suppose other people might feel differently, but I think it's an important conversation and yeah, like we feel, and you, I love that you talked about too, like the things people say to you, like just how insensitive, like people are oh, like, yeah. <laughs> Like, I love the part in your book about the dog. Like, people. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, I was so laughing. many people say that. So like, many I... people say, I know how you feel. My dog died last year. That's no, one of the most common things people say, like, from, from all of my running a community of bereaved parents. Like, that, that is super common. I know how you feel. My dog, my, my cat died. When I read that on the plane, I was laughing out loud. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, it's tricky because, you know, like now it's like they just want to be relatable, you know, like they just want to be relatable. But it's like, 
It's probably the worst thing you can say. But eventually you have to, you have to laugh at some of this stuff. It's like, and and then of course, that's the great thing of, of having sort of communion with other people who have been through the same thing, because then you realize, oh my God, it's not just me. This is just this. And like you said, this is our society being so insulated from death. Yeah. And so insulated from loss that we really don't know anymore how to process death or loss or grief or anything because we are so decadent. Our, our own decadence has brought us to a point where we really are not, you know, I, I think about, I think about the past as well. I love anything with time travel in it, but I think about how, you know, we've lost a lot of religion and religious institution the, the sort of institution that kind of governed a lot of our family life and our worldview and perspective in a way that i think maybe is a bit um that we're we're really struggling with now because there used to be the sort of reverence that we used to have for grief in the, in in a very tangible way where we used to wear black for x number of weeks I mean, the, the, of course, the funny part is you think of uh, Scarlett O'Hara and Gone with the Wind, and she's got her black dress on, and she's sitting at a ball, and she's absolutely pissed off that she's not allowed to dance. So she's like sitting there at a counter, and and then the and then the camera pans down, and she's she's dancing under her dress, <laughs> which is really funny <laughs> and sweet. But but like we used to, I back in the day thinking about that and and feeling like i wish that i could wear a big black dress right now cuz i wish everyone could know that i am in this space i wish there was some way that i could signal it to either say ask me about what happened ask me about my dead son so that i can speak his name and sort of explain my how i'm showing up and what i'm what i'm capable of caring about right now or to have people give me a wide berth, like leave me alone, you know, a little bit of a little bit of each, and um, but we don't have that now because we we don't have those sort of mores, those spiritual, the, the the spiritual scaffolding to kind of help us exist in the world and help rationalize. I mean, you know, and and in those ways, I've had my moments of envy of people that have a really strong faith because. I would really love to have that faith that Liam is in an afterlife and that he's taken care of and that there is such a thing as God's plan. And I, I really, um, I don't really believe anything in particular. Um, like, you know, I don't think, I don't call myself an atheist necessarily because of some of the things I wrote about in the book that I experienced that I still can't explain and don't want to and don't need to in relation to having known Liam. Um, but I'm just kind of, uh, I don't really believe anything in particular. I I just, but I, I do look at people of faith and I think what a comfort that must be. And, and just, uh, to have that community to, to lean on. And I think sort of those of us who were maybe brought up with a much less theologically grounded upbringing, like you were just at church for the tea and the music, like, like I was, or, or if you're secular, that we, we really are kind of grappling about in the dark to find the shape of how to get through this, both in terms of how we rationalize it to ourselves and also how we show up in the world and how the world treats us. I remember like one thing that would drive me nuts, like the first year after I would be, Isaiah was, my other son was maybe three yeah and so you know young you know um toddler ish and and people would look like grocery store everywhere and they would say just the one yeah and that just like do you want me to tell you the story like (laughs) yeah like like, and and it's like sometimes I sometimes I would and of course it was out of my own like like I was a bitch you know like I was I was like Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, and then you've made a grocery store clerk cry. Yeah, exactly. 
exactly like and then you're like yep that's right and then you're off to your car and then like two hours later you're like oh god what did I do god yes but then but then sometimes you say yes just the one because you're just not in the mood to go into it and then you feel like you're somehow betraying and yeah. invisibling, vanishing exactly. your son, you know, and yeah. it is really, there's no winning either way. My husband's a dentist. And so, I mean, I, the amount of small talk, you know, that he mm-hmm. had to do and still to this day, like this week, last week, he said, somebody asked me, how were our boys today? And I said, oh my God, he'd be like, you know, he has to tell, I read like the amount, just how exhausting, like I really... You know, as much as I work in the public, I don't think, do you know that? I was like, wow, like he's been just so good, you know, and and to receive that, there's always, I mean, I think we're ill-equipped to deal with, you know, when trauma hits, we get better with time. Do we, Kate, you think? All, all All of the edges soften. Yeah. They, they definitely do. But then, but then of course, it, the trauma is always going to be sort of an undercurrent that will pop up again when you're dealing with the next chapter of struggle. Because it'll always be something, you know, as soon as life gets comfortable, then something else will change. You lose a job, your marriage hits the skids, you realize after a long time that maybe your relationship with your parents is somehow abusive or, or not functioning, or who knows, like any number of these things that, and, and I find that even though the direct trauma of that loss has softened, it is sort of a topsoil that is spread all over the, the garden of your mind that sort of changes how thoughts grow. Yeah. And not necessarily all for the worse. It's not like it's some kind of a poisonous element, but when you're then dealing with those subsequent challenges, Sometimes, oh yeah, sometimes it can just bubble back up again in a way that starts to become a narrative. Like, why does this kind of thing always happen to me? Or some kind of a narrative about unfairness or a narrative about being alone or a narrative about being a bad caregiver. Yeah, so sometimes it kind of bubbles up again, but time does help. I really do believe it does. And when it does bubble up again, hopefully if you get to that point, you know, not to harp on this too much. But if you if you do have that sort of mother-child dynamic within your own internal dialogue, that trauma bubbles up and you recognize it and you say, I know, sweetheart, it's okay. It's okay for you to be mad. Mm-hmm. And generally when you do that and give the tantrum a snack, <laughs> give it a little space to breathe, give it some fresh air. And then it'll settle itself again, just like a kid does, you know, and you just get a little more sort of on the ball, a little quick to kind of know what that tantrum needs to settle down again and just rest. Um, You just get a little more proficient as that archetypal mother, I think. Do you know the, he's a psychotherapist. His name is Francis Weller. No, I don't think I do. He wrote a great book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow. It's a beautiful title. Yes. He's taught me. He's been a great mentor for all this. And one of his lines that has always struck me uh, that he said was, uh, grief is an energy waiting to be witnessed. I always love that. Um, and I want to finish on on that for the podcast because you talked about having like a community and having a circle. And, um, and I, I love that you talked about faith too, like kind of wishing you had that <laughs> kind of mm. like, what has been your experience in terms of having, you know, a social network? Cause like, I've been fascinated by that, how sometimes strangers like have been more help for me than like the closest people closest to me. I haven't really been <laughs> to say the lack of a better yeah. Like, can you just share a bit, maybe your experience in terms of that? Sometimes it's hard for the people in our life to sort of be that witness because they love you and because they're invested in you in a way that's real. And when strangers are connected to your story or find out about your story or perhaps connected in in a community by a shared experience, they're not invested in your life. 
they're a lollygagger. You know, that sounds like a negative term. I don't mean it that way, but they are observing. They're watching it unfold for a total stranger, as a total stranger. And so it doesn't cost them anything to affirm, to hear fully, to relate, because they are not around for the consequences of your healing or your suffering. So it's easier, it's much lower hanging fruit to kind of go to, to, to social networks or the internet to feel affirmed. Um, and I th- it's just easier. You know, I think in some ways it can be really, really positive. But in other ways, I'm not, I'm not sure. I mean, I think we look too much to our digital lives right now. It's not real the discord that we see in our society that plays out on Twitter, for example, or on the internet, really on any social network, the discord isn't real. It's amplified in really weird, manipulative ways. And the affirmation that we can get online can also be distorted in really manipulative, weird, fraudulent ways. So so that, that all sounds a bit harsh, I suppose, as a way of of finishing off the conversation. It really depends on the space. Glow in the Woods was always really, really helpful for me to be a part of it because it is specifically a community for bereaved parents. And so you take that sort of piece of yourself and you go there and you're, you're in a friendly crowd. Whereas back when all of this happened to me, I happened to, at the time, be writing online. I had a blog. And so there were a lot of people following along in the NICU. And some of them still do follow along because they know me from back then. And they were sort of reading what was happening as it was unfolding. Even though I know they they felt like they cared, it was more of a phenomenon of how when you pass a car accident, you slow down. Because you're like, oh, no, what happened there? And ooh, and like everybody kind of like slows down for, for something sad. And then they keep driving. Whereas people in your life, they can't just drive away. So it's a much more difficult and complex and long view kind of a relationship. Whereas really like the relationship that I had with people who were just sort of random people online that were following along, it felt almost more transactional in a way that always made me uncomfortable because I would write something about, you know, something that maybe might've eventually become the, the kernel of a, a scene or a chapter in Everlost and notes for the Everlost and, you know, way back in 2008 or 2009. And I might've, shared it on the blog. And then other people would share it elsewhere thinking, OMG, you got to read this. Totes crying. Everyone remember to hug your loved ones a little tighter today because look at this miserable woman. You know, I mean, they didn't quite put it that way, but it just left me feeling kind of hollow. Like I was just a prop to remind other people how lucky they were. It didn't feel appropriate for me to not have gratitude for people reading along and saying nice things. So there's definitely a weird vibration there Mm. in terms of, you know, in the beginning, I was much more, I put a lot more weight in, in the kind of affirmation that you get from having an audience because it felt like support, but it was kind of meaningless support because it didn't cost them anything. They weren't in my life. They weren't really actually having to look me in the eye. As I sort of matured in my grief, I sort of could see it more for what it was, which wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but just more sort of transactional, more fleeting. People would read that story and say, OMG, hashtag hug your kids. And then they would go on to laugh at a bunch of cat memes. And I was just one of, I was just content. I wasn't really a person. I was just oh my God, look at this crazy sad story. Oh my God. Like, uh, and it's just like a dog barking out the window as they, as the car drives by. 
and it's like, uh, like I got to a point where I thought, I don't know how I feel about this. Yeah. Like, it feels weird. And then even now, like I recently, I shared a picture of Ben uh, at the NICU because my, my kids don't like me to share a lot of pictures anymore of them on, on Instagram because they're teenagers and they're yeah. cranky about getting the picture taken. I get it. But I shared a picture of Ben at the hospital saying like, oh my gosh, he's so grown up. And because I sort of tend to do that whenever we take in the quilts, because I just reflect on like, here's my two pounder. And the security guard commented on how strong he was. He was carrying like three full garbage bags. And, and so I just put a little note on Instagram and sort of shared it. And because it kind of gave me an excuse to share a picture of my handsome kid. Yeah. And so I did that. And you know, the, the amount of comments and responses, I, it was sort of like, whoa, like it just made me feel weird. It made me feel, and I, I, it's such, it's such a hard thing to talk about because I don't want to seem ungrateful, but I was talking to another who, who lost her, her child as well. Yeah. And she also used to blog about this. She was actually a writer at Glow in the Woods. And I said, sometimes I feel at this point when I'm sharing my story, the responses that I get, the sort of hashtaggy responses, make me feel a little bit like dance monkey dance, mm. you know, in a way that I'm really conflicted about. So and, and there's a quote. Uh, it's I shouldn't even bring it up because I can't remember the author or the quote in, in clarity. But there was a quote from someone, and I think it's in the book, that is about people who write beautifully about grief and that people it's a very old quote oh I shouldn't have even brought it up because I don't really remember it but it was something around when we experience beauty in the pain of someone else we say just a little more give us a little more and there's this hunger that we have to feel this transcendent feeling of witnessing beauty in someone else's pain mm. that can start to feel like a little bit of a burden to the person producing that beauty for you to absorb and reflect on, you know? So it's, it's a really, I'm, I'm, I'm expressing very complex things here that I haven't even reconciled. So maybe I shouldn't have gone there, but it's just, it's a really weird mix to me when I think of the internet, our digital lives and how much we share, how little we keep private. And how good it's been for us, maybe in the long run. And I don't know, because I just feel like, you know, here we have all this connection, yet we are less connected than we ever have been, really, in ways that are meaningful and invested. Um, and we see that in our kids and how they develop and maintain friendships and how much time they spend online. And so I've got a lot of really complicated feelings about it right now that I'm reflecting on in terms of grief and you know, the difference between writing a book and having a blog and, and posting things on Facebook. And, and I've, I've actually gone kind of quiet. It really, Instagram is the only place that I really am quite frequently nowadays. Like we need to actually get out more and grow some cucumbers, dig in the dirt, get offline more, actually speak face to face with each other and struggle through those difficult conversations and the fallout from them. And that's kind of where I'm at at the point is, is just, I want more nature right now. I want less amplification of pain on social media, you know? So, so yeah, I don't know how, how, how are you feeling about that? Is that these are like important, important conversations, you know, and I know in my years of like writing on Instagram and hmm. blogging and yeah, I've had to constantly come back to like, what's my, what's my intention here? Like, why am I writing this? Like, what's mm -hmm. the purpose of this? You know, to come yeah. back. like, why am I doing this? Am I doing this to get accolades? Am I doing this? You know? Mm -hmm. And if I feel that way, I, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't post uh, it. It's such, mm -hmm. I mean, what, what you're talking about there could be an entire other conversation yeah. in itself in terms of yeah. like our craft and what we share. And, and I, I too, I go like back and forth. I'm really so much more aware, you know, of how much I pick up my phone in one day. Like sometimes mm. it's like, okay, like stop, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. 
And at the same time, it's kind of muffled because it's like your work too, right? Like to sell books, to sell this. Or I know, like I can't just, yeah. Yeah. And then I remember like three or four years ago, I was like, stop saying it's for your work. Like it's not all work here. You know, like I, so I, you know, okay, yes, it's for work, but. It's a bit of a crutch to say that. Yeah, because it's yeah. like, our, let's say our brand, which I don't like really that word, but you know, they're mm. so personal. They're so personal. But there is the, the phenomenon is real where, you know, people just the, the acts. I love that imagery of the, the accident. But then if there's if there's like 100 people just for an, an even number who are sort of like, you know, hashtag OMG beautiful pain that make me feel like hashtag dance monkey dance, then, then there might be two or three people who are in a really dark place and they need to know that 14 years later that I have become myself again, you know, many, many, many times over. And so there's, you know, I, I often think like, did glow in the woods even make a difference? Like, is it just uh, like, is the book making a difference? Like, is it just me being self-indulgent and prattling on? And, but then every now and then you get an email. I get an email with someone who says like, I was walking through the bookstore looking for a, a cookbook like looking cause I'm a foodie and someone had put notes for the Everlost in the cookbook section and I picked it up and I feel like you saved my life today. And, and I, again, I don't mean to like aggrandize myself, but, but there are those moments that make me think I'm glad that there are still those people out there. And I try to remember that when I start feeling transactional or, or yeah. uncomfortable now with, you know, cause it's so deeply integrated now into who I am that I don't need to, I've graduated. It's menudo. I'm, I'm, I'm 19 now. I'm not even 17. <laughs> you know, I'm sort of way beyond that point in, in terms of the grief. And it's funny, it's funny when in that, um, dimension, because I wasn't even thinking of the digital world, I, you know, in terms mm. of, um, like strangers, I was literally like, and maybe you maybe you haven't, but I've had encounters with, uh, my like male lady and the the till worker that I felt I've seen me seen me in my pain like more and more than like other people close to me. Yeah, it's been really kind of fascinating that way where like for example, I was at the superstore with as it was so young and the lady just you know friendly asked me like. Do you, no, she didn't ask. She just, she was just making chit chat, and she said, she was talking to Azen, and she said, uh, "Do you, do you have a sibling waiting for you at home?" <laughs> like, oh. I don't know, I'm just sitting there, oh. like, I mean, is this really happening? <laughs> like, I mean, oh. and and I, my, and Isaiah said, "No, he's dead." He said that to her. So it's like he outed me. He outed me. I was like, because I wasn't mm-hmm. gonna say anything, you know. And anyways, that lady turned around. I I still want to cry thinking about it. And she looked at me and she said, well, now that's just terrible. (laughs) And I swear in that moment, and of course now we're both like, we're both crying her and me. But I was like, oh my God, somebody that's finally saying Mm -hmm. it for what it is. And to maybe like veer back to the beginning of our conversation where it's like, it is radical to say that you're not fine, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a radical thing to be like today, what makes me feel alive? It's like my struggles today. What makes me feel alive as I feel lost, you know, that makes me feel alive because it's like yeah. the other side of the coin. Like nobody, but I shouldn't generalize obviously, because we're talking about it, but that is life too, you know? Yeah. Those are, those are beautiful. I had some of those moments too, where just someone that's, a total stranger would, would say something and find out and they would look at me and say, that is terrible. And I would say, wow, thanks. <laughs> like, thank you. Cause it is. Thank you for not trying to placate me with, oh, well, hopefully you'll have another one. Yeah. Those are really beautiful moments when someone, when you connect with someone like that, that is lovely. Okay. Now I want to have like, 10 more conversations with you. <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry. <laughs> I've got a lot on my mind these days. I have a lot to talk about, Estelle. I love it. <laughs> uh, in your 
closet, <laughs> in your closet, talking to me. Yeah. Uh, we have one more, part three, and I wanted, so you all stay tuned. I want to talk about the creative, how creativity really has been, I don't want to talk for you, Kate, but has been a necessity for me as really as I unfold in yeah. grief. So I'm really, mm-hmm. really excited to kind of stream of consciousness, talk about that with you, Kate. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This has been so fun. Yeah, looking forward to part three. Same, same. Let's take a breath together. We'll take an inhale. Oh, and a sigh. <sighs> Wonderful. Oh, so nice. Okay, bye. Bye, Estelle. This podcast was produced by Tosh Taylor of the Podcast Hub Productions. Find her online at podcasthub.ca.